Hello and welcome to Tonebenders. I am your host for today, Tim Muirhead, and sitting with me is Teresa Morrow as my co-host today. Teresa, how are you doing? I'm good, Tim. Excellent. Thanks for joining me. We are super lucky because our guests today are two of the sound leads on Damien Chazelle's recent film, First Man. First up, we have Eileen Lee, who is one of the re-recording mixers, sound designer, and co-supervising sound editor. Her previous credits include La La Land, Deadpool, Maze Runner, Wild, and Tangled. Welcome to the show, Eileen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem. Also joining us is Mildred Yachu Morgan, co-supervising sound editor on First Man. You can hear her previous work in films like La La Land, for which both of you were nominated for an Oscar, Battle of the Sexes, and Hairspray. Welcome, Millie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This is uh, really awesome that you guys were able to take the time to talk to us because I love the film First Man. I was I wasn't expecting not to love it, but it bowled me over. Thank so, you. Yeah, we're, we're really happy that you guys uh, really liked the movie. So. Well, you must be really happy with your work on it too, because uh, it's a it's a real stunner of a film, and the soundtrack has to carry a lot of the film. In fact, the very first scene of the film. There's not really any music. Maybe there's some drones. That's something we can talk about, where the music and sound effects separate. But the first scene of the film is Neil Armstrong doing a test flight, and he goes up into space and bounces off the atmosphere. There's no dialogue, essentially no music. I guess there's some dialogue in the comms. But no, the yes. Neil Armstrong doesn't say anything. It's all on you to make this work. What was going through your head when you first saw that scene? The first scene, uh, the X-15 sequence, it sets the tone for the film. Basically, it starts the movie and throws you right into the seat of the cockpit. It's intense, claustrophobic, and it feels like you are seeing it from the perspective of Neil. Meanwhile, you know, because it's a X-15 is a rocket-powered aircraft, and, you know, it's not like a typical aircraft that it can just fly back down. So mm -hmm. Damien and Tom realize like, you know, they need sound to also help explain to the viewers what's happening. We were working closely with the picture editorial, especially at the moment once Neil is up in space and he sees the curvature of Earth's atmosphere and he realized like, oh, he's drifting upwards and he had to cut back down into the atmosphere at a certain angle in order to glide back to Earth. A lot of that information is hard to understand for a regular layperson. And so they had to trim down all the technical jargon and try to simplify all the communications between mission control to Neil. Um, so with that, with the Dialogue ADR crew, they had a lot of specific radio communications to Neil. And for Neil, we had a lot of like Ryan Gosling's like breathings and efforts that could also help tell us how he was feeling at the moment. And also with the use of, how do you say, like a radio um, static, because the clearer you hear the radio communications, the closer he is to Earth. And then when you start hearing the static and the radio voices goes away, he's leaving further away from Earth. And so we kind of use that logic to try to explain to the audience what's happening. And also that section there for the sound effects is pretty quiet, um, except for like some like low drone or metal creaks. It's just mainly the ticking of the automator that kind of helps show the audience he's gaining in height. So the, the way that the scene plays out, they're, you're using the sound of metal shaking to kind of illustrate 
the claustrophobicness of this jet. Where did you get all these metal sounds from? Yeah, like very early on and um, when, you know, we were in touch with Damien about this movie and having seen the animatics that he created during pre-production, uh, we kind of had an idea like we would need a lot of very intense turbulence shakes. And we tried to record different methods of shaking metal pieces or vehicles uh, without making it sound synthetic. So we went out to record motion simulator vehicle, especially when the machine, you know, when it injects low frequencies to the entire motion simulator vehicle ride to heavily shake and vibrate the entire vehicle. It gives us a very natural sounding shake that also sounds like it's from a very tight confined space rather than finding a piece of metal and just shaking it by hand. And uh, there's these things that's called um, the I-beam. It's basically like a, a low frequency vibrator that people use for like their cars, boombox, or like a home theater to connect under their theater seats for the extra shake and rumble. So those are attached to different size um, vehicles and metal panels to naturally vibrate and shake to get the resonance of the metals. And plus our Foley team, who are the Foley walkers, Dan O'Connell and John Cucci, uh, they did brilliant work at creating all that creaks and groans of the uh, cockpit scenes. So were you uh, doing a lot of advanced research, trying to piece together on some level what it actually sounded like inside the vehicles and looking for realistic or vintage sound effects that would be accurate? So early on, you know, uh, after reading the script and uh, seeing some of the animatics um, that Damien provided to us, um, besides the fact that the script is based on this very detailed biography of Neil Armstrong, uh, having read those books and watched many different documentaries regarding the early uh, years of the American space race. You know, I was curious to understand the technology that first took us to this other world to figure out how it sounded and felt inside the rockets and the space capsules. But a big part of it is also about reading up about interviews with all these former astronauts on how they would describe what it feels like when they are inside the rocket during the launch or how it sounded when they are suited up in the spacesuits. So I wrote a bunch of questions to a former astronaut. His name is Jim Lovell, um, who participated in the Gemini and the Apollo program. He very kindly hand wrote back to me. And uh, what stood out to me was his description of the constant roar during like the Apollo launch and how little outside sounds, you know, could be heard from inside their spacesuits. It's almost like once they suited up, they mostly hear their own breathing and helmet air from the life support system. But, you know, you could also read from like various books how Neil and Buzz and Mike Collins, how they described the difference between the Gemini launch and say the Apollo launch. Um, Damien is also, you know, aware and attuned how with sound design, sound effects, that it helps make it a much more visceral feeling, which was uh, great for us. And he wants things to sound as authentic as possible. 
Um, so we ended up, um, we went and, you know, record different kinds of rocket launches, especially for the Saturn V launch. We record SpaceX when they launched the Falcon Heavy, which was, well, last year now at Cape Canaveral, I think on the same launch pad where they had launched the Saturn V. We were able to have close-up access to place microphones on the launch pad just so we could try to get as much authentic ignition of the close-up crackle of the rocket launch and quarter-mile distance and you know, three-mile distance recordings, even the sonic booms when it re-enters the atmospheres. We uh, repurposed it for the X-15 sequence um, when he breaks through the atmosphere and to help add to the weight and feeling of these um, rocket launches, we record JPL, which is a NASA's JPL's uh, acoustic chamber, so that we could help the audience feel the low end rumbling during the launch. Basically, like they blast the chamber with nitrogen gas to create this sound, and it's used to test components by simulating the acoustics inside a rocket during the launch. So, wow. um, yeah, so we recorded all that intense low-end sound with many different mics. One of the recorders and the engineers at Universal, they um, converted a JBL subwoofer speaker cone into a mic input. So we could record through that and the various multitude of other uh, mics that we could set up there. And then for the smaller sounds, because Damien wanted to feel a closeness and a sense of tactile feeling of how close you are to the astronauts and how confined the space is when you're inside the capsule with them. So, you know, you'll hear every little glove creak or the helmet clicks. Um, you know, Frank Montano, being this big space geek that he is, he had a lot of connections and was able to record a bunch of actual artifacts, astronaut suit from, you know, the Apollo mission and the X-15 suit of the helmet clicks and the umbilical cord snaps, glove creaks, even the uh, helmet air hiss from the life support system that you hear in the movie. Sounds like that. Oh, oh, oh yeah, and, and also like mission control blocks, um, all the buttons and switches, just the little tiny detail stuff that we could get as authentic as we can. Yeah, it's really cool how those sounds make a difference. Uh, I loved that all the switches and stuff, you didn't feel the need to put beeps in. So many GD science fiction films, whenever someone flips a switch, it, you hear the click and a little beep. <laughs> and it was nice to just hear the mechanicalness of it. it made it feel like it was just a metal box that they're floating through space in. Yeah. So you guys are both credited as co-sound as co-sound supervisors on it. Correct. How did you go about dividing up the workload? Um, this is, I think, the sixth or seventh movie I've worked with Eileen. And what we do is she's the sound designer and supervises all the sound effects and Foley. I mean, there's a Foley supervisor, but she works with a Foley supervisor. And I'm in charge of all the spoken words, the dialogue, the ADR, the loop group. And we work together and, you know, on our sides. And then we are constantly playing things for each other and getting notes from each other and keeping each other up to date as to what we're working on. So in, in terms of First Man, one of my biggest challenges was dealing with the comms because most of the comms, I would say about 
60 to 75% of them were actual comms from NASA that were actually used in these space missions. But I then had to add comms that we were recreating for story purposes in order to make certain things, certain story beats clearer. I had to bring in the actors or bring in loop group people to um, create these comms, but then they had to all sound uh, and blend together seamlessly. How did that come through the process? It started from even pre-production. Eileen referenced those, um, the animatics, and which were so useful in so many ways. And in those animatics, they actually had the comms that they were going to use in the sequence. They were mostly archival comms. And then as they edited the, the film, as it was shot, and then they edited it, they carried those comms forward. But then as they got more into the editing, you know, we were back and forth. We were constantly getting, you know, the cuts of the film so that we could do our sound work on them. And every time I got a new version, there would be new lines of dialogue added. And there would usually be people from the cutting room. And um, they would throw like a very simple futz on it. And then it would be my job to figure out, okay, I'm going to do this with an actor from the film or this one I'm going to get a loop group person. And then I would... Um, I cast for a loop group. We worked with Ranjani Brau Prieto. And actually, I sent her some comms, some archival comms, and I said, please try to find me voices that would sound like they come from the same period. So she sent me a whole bunch of auditions, and then I went through them and picked out the ones that sounded the most authentic or sounded as though they could have come from that period. And then I would have to record those on an ADR stage. And then sometimes, while they were editing, I would put a futz on it, but then at the very end during the final mix, John Taylor, who was our dialogue mixer, created a futz palette for all the comms that was then used throughout the final mix. I'm really interested to hear more about the, the futz aspect of it because it's so well done and it, it imparts a lot of character to the different individuals in the film. But I also want to mention the voice casting because I, I don't know, that's one of my pet peeves is period films where like they just, people used to talk differently and it's such a elusive art to find actors and to voice direct people into that space. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that bugs me too when I feel like somebody <laughs> just jumps out of a movie, I, especially if it's the voice, it, I find it extremely irritating. Uh, Damien is incredibly precise in what he wants and very, very picky as he should be, as all great directors should be. So my goal was to come up with voices that Damien wouldn't then say, get rid of that guy. He does not fit in at all. So I was, I was very, very diligent in terms of casting and Ra Rajani Brow Prieto and Ashley Lambert were very good. They, they gave me lots of very good people. But one instance in particular, when we first start the sequence in, um, at NASA, we have all the astronauts are watching um, a NASA film about what their mission yep. is going to be. In that case, that is an actual NASA film. And there was an actual NASA recording that went with it of a narrator, but we couldn't use it due to copyright reasons. So I could use the text, but I had to re-record the voice. And what they gave me was the picture editor just saying those words. So um, I went and I found this guy and I just thought he sounded perfect and he did a great performance. And then I brought it in to the, the dialogue pre-dub and John Taylor put this amazing futz on it where he also did like a time speed variation. So it sounded a little warped. 
And when we first played it for Damien, he said for a second he thought it was the actual Nassau track that we were going to replace. He got really confused and he turned to me and he was like, I can't believe you fooled me. So I felt really happy at that moment that Damien bought it. He thought it was an actual Nassau film recording. He has an amazing ear. He really yeah. does. So, uh, Millie, the main character in this film, Neil Armstrong, he barely speaks throughout the whole film. I was saying to someone, uh, you, Teresa, that the Kyle Chandler character is like the ninth most important character in the film, maybe, and he has like five times as many lines as the main character in the film. So, so much of his performance is told through breaths and uh, grunts and such. Were, was that all done in ADR or was that done on set? And how, how, do, how did you tackle all that? It was a combination. For example, that X-15 sequence, the opening sequence in the film, um, originally when they were cutting it, Damien recorded a temp track of all the breaths and grunts and all that stuff. And it was, again, meticulously cut to picture. And then Damien said to me, okay, now do this with Ryan Gosling and I want it to be exactly the same. So <laughs> that was another challenge. So we just, I mean, he was great. Ryan Gosling is very good at ADR and he's very focused. And so we had to do it several times and then it was my job to cut it together so that it sounded just like what Damien did because everything was so choreographed and, and he hit certain points a certain way and certain grunts a certain were in a certain cadence and all this stuff so but all in all throughout the film it was a combo of stuff recorded on set and um and adr breaths and i have to say in terms of adr there was almost no adr recorded to replace dialogue which is pretty amazing considering they shot a lot of these scenes in these very very noisy locations but um mary ellis did a great job she mic'd Everybody, for example, in Mission Control, you know, 20, 30 actors were all mic'd. Everybody in that room was mic'd. So I was able to use almost everything that was recorded on set. Wow, that must have been a hell of a dialogue edit when you pulled up all those tracks. <laughs> yes, um, uh, Susan Dawes was the dialogue supervisor and she did her pass on that scene and she pulled out all the loves and it was sounded absolutely beautiful. She did an amazing job. And then when we put it up at the mix, Damien said, that sounds too clean. <laughs> so we had to go and because they had been cutting with the mix track and he liked that in the mix track, there were the more of the paper sounds, more of the room sounds, more grit and more noise. And so Susan and I had to figure out, okay, let's use the mix track here. Okay, let's go to the lav here. So it ended up being a combo. It's a really interesting approach to dialogue in this film. And it's not crystal clear dialogue uh, all the way through, which over the past years, there have been conversations about this, like how people go overboard in underplaying dialogue and it ends up taking people out when they're watching the film. I, I found in this film is such an interesting approach because the dialogue kind of weaves up and down with, everything else that's going on, obviously like crazy chaotic scenes where effects are rightfully overpowering dialogue, not even necessarily in the space scenes, in some of the home life scenes as well. Mm -hmm. uh, usually you're like, oh, what's going on? This is really bugging me as a viewer. But right. I never had that experience in that film. And it's a real stylistic thing that I feel like you really pulled off. Yeah, like a home, like almost like a home video kind of feel. 
Um, yeah, you just roll with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, for example, one of the scene um, during the mix, I think it was after Neil learned about that he got assigned to be, you know, on the Gemini 8 and then his family and his neighbor's wife, you know, they were all gathered at his backyard on the pool, you know, listening to Oklahoma and the kids are playing, the wives were chatting and Neil's like cleaning the pool. All those different layers of dialogue, I remembered um, that JT, you know, had originally like, and us with the, all the spotted effects and Foley, you know, to make sure we clear all the different layers of dialogue over each other, all the screaming kids and Janet's um, dialogue. You know, we want to make sure we know we could hear everything. And then Damien would hear it and he would go, no, 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 no. It should kind of play like they're just talking, chit-chatting, and the kids are having fun and um, yell and shout, you know, kind of poke through and overstep on her dialogue sometimes. It's, it's fine. It, it, it should be almost like this interwoven mess of a <laughs> layering of a dialogue. And, and so we're like, oh, really? And then we're like, oh, okay. It, it, it turned out it, it worked really well. And, you know, a lot of it is through Damien's vision and his leadership. But, of course, we try to craft it as best as we can. But like you said, you know, during those loud cockpit sequences, there may be, like, certain technical terms, you know, that... Even if we play on its own, us as a lay person, we have no idea what it means. Yeah. Uh, it could be like CPS, ignition, lock, or whatever, and then we go, mm, no idea what it is. <laughs> and so in that case, you know, it's okay if some of, some of the sound effects takes over the dialogue a little. It's such a fine line with that stuff. It shows a level of finesse in the mixing. Yeah, thank you. You're listed as one of the re-recording mixers. What, what were you mixing? What area were you tackling? So I mixed uh, mostly the uh, effects and the design, we all mixed on S6s. Mm -hmm. So basically on the mix stage, we had three S6s. So um, one of the S6s would be dialogue ADR music, and then effects and design. And then the third is um, Foley and backgrounds. And so I um, mixed the effects and design. The movie uh, setting obviously provides a, a really perfect location for using Atmos in really cool ways. Um, do you want to talk a bit about what kind of fun things you got to try out? And maybe I'm kind of curious as to how people are um, evolving their attitudes towards mixing in Atmos as, as time goes on and as you mix more films with that. Well, um I mean, quite a lot of the movies I've mixed nowadays, they are mostly the native Atmos mix, including First Man. Uh, and Damien's also big into it, too, because um, we did that on La La Land, too. So for this, it's really beneficial because, in a sense, you know, even though you know, First Man is mostly a very quiet and impersonal film, it has these big launch sequences, which uh, having Atmos really helps a lot. So... The other quiet family personal scenes, you know, in the mix is more like narrower, more upfront. But in these big mission sequences, we wanted to surround our audience in it. Um, it's not about being loud. For me, one of the biggest beneficial atmospheres is the um, full range surrounds. Yes. So it can carry that weight and the size of the sounds. 
so it worked great for all these rocket launch scenes in this movie. And also, of course, with some of the uh, overheads for the objects panning uh, in this scenario for this movie, you have the uh, multi-axis trainer sequence. And that is a cool scene. <laughs> oh, cool, cool, very good. It's sometimes about just not to be too gimmicky about it because um, it's mostly about picking out like one or two elements, say, in the Gemini spin sequence to put into the objects and pan them around from one side wall to the next side wall or overhead front to back. It depends on uh, the moves, uh, on the sound too, uh, how it reacts in the theater, you know, on the mix stage. Sometimes it takes some trial and error. You may go, hey, I can try the sound. Let me pan it. And then you may pan it and go, hmm, not sure. I kind of like the image before they had better. Then we will revert back. Sometimes less is more in a sense that when you do end up using it for panning around, it has more effect. Um, but yeah, for me, Atmos is the uh, full range surrounds. And I would imagine for the music, it's also able to pull some of that music a little bit away from the screen a little bit, just to clear some kind of room for the dialogue, being that this movie is such an intimate film. There's so much to unpack with this film. I want to ask like nine questions at once here. Uh, something that I f want to talk about is your use of silence in this film. Uh, it's not something that narratively a lot of films are able to do. It, uh, it, there's some unique moments in this film where silence is called for. And going to silence is, uh, that's the easy part. It's getting out of silence that is hard. Uh, how did you guys design the soundtrack to be able to get back out? A lot of the silences in this movie, you know, a lot of it's very quiet, mainly because, you know, Damien wanted the sound to convey, like, space to have this lonely, chilling feeling. And um, sometimes when we play quiet, we have some kind of low drone or something kind of sound, even though it's, people may say it's quiet silent or quiet mm -hmm. but the thing is there's moments in this film sometimes even long sections in it where there's absolutely zero sound in there say for example when we are on the moon after they opened the lunar lander's hatch door the big contrast in sound from the air section sound from the hatch door to the complete sonic silence on the moon's surface we remained in that pure sonic silence for a really long time. And so we had to gradually uh, you know, mix in and blend in the helmet air hiss and Neil's breathing um, to get us out of that silence. It's just so that that way we can introduce the audience back inside Neil's head and also try to recreate as best as we can from how the astronauts described how it sounds inside the spacesuit. It took, it's some kind of finesse mixing in a sense, because you know, you want it to slowly fade the sound up because I have different layers of air hiss in there. I had to be you know, really gentle and easy on introducing some of the air hiss first. Then um, JT introduced some of um, Neil's breathing that Millie had done. Um, so a lot of it is about um, maybe you know, depending on the frequency of the sounds, if it's like a higher frequency, maybe, you know, I can slowly, gradually mix up the volume or tapering some of the lower frequency away and or introducing, slowly introducing it back 
as it slowly comes in. But yeah, um, to have enough time to get back to full sound level, it's, it, it helps. It worked really, really well. And there, there was another moment of silence that I wanted to ask uh, what you were thinking about with it. In the opening scene, right before the uh, plane lands, there's like maybe a half second we go to silence and then you have the, mm -hmm. the crash. Did you discover that at the mix or was that designed into it from the beginning? Uh, it was designed into it from the beginning. It's kind of something about like what we do as um, sound editors sometimes. And, and also it helps when it gets to the mix. Uh, this helps us create some form of tension and helps with the dynamics. Um, so that, you know, when you have nothing, you have a lot more to go with the loudness after that. Um, you don't have to go too loud uh, to still get that impact. It's also partially also Damien's really into using sound, so he wanted usage of these in the film. So this was a good area for it. And it worked really well um, because it, everything amps up right to that one moment. And then a split second later, it hits and impacts. It works. <laughs> I've tried to do that technique a couple times on shows that I've been working on. Yeah. And uh, you have to have the right director that's got to, that's willing to take that risk because it is a little out of the ordinary. It but is. I think it works so well that it's worth the risk. It is. Um, you know, sometimes we do that, but not to varying lengths of silence. This one is a little bit longer beat. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's up to the filmmaker <laughs> a lot of the times. We try to do the best as we can, um, but yeah, in the end, it's up to the filmmaker. Did you want to talk about the helmet treatments? Millie, do you want to yeah, talk I'll a start. bit about how that was done? Yeah, um, so like I said earlier, um, the, the, what we're hearing in the film, it's almost all production dialogue. So what you're hearing when they're in the spacecraft with their helmets on, we're hearing the production sound. But then we had to go and record some additional lines of ADR. And it was really great that um, Frank Montano, who makes the backgrounds of the Foley, is also a space fan and he knows all about all these missions. And he, um, with a friend of his, built a helmet box that we used to worldize the ADR so that when I had a line of ADR, I didn't have to worry about how to record it. I just recorded it clean on the ADR stage. And then during pre-dubs and during the final, we were able to send the clean ADR out to a helmet box and then have it returned back to the mix. And then uh, John Taylor could adjust it so that it you know, matched what was done in production. One helmet is a high altitude helmet, like for the X-15 Germany mission, um, which is, I think was based off like the Soviet, uh, like a MiG helmet, either a Chinese or a Soviet MiG um, helmet. And then there's a second helmet in this helmet box that is more like a bubble helmet that mm -hmm. is for the Apollo mission. They, they are not like real authentic ones because, you know, um, Smithsonian <laughs> landed to us. So, so then, you know, uh, they had the, the engineer at Universal built this pretty big soundproof box and they ran the cable all the way from you know where the machine room is to this box and so it has a, a little car radio speaker mm -hmm. to play the sound and then a little lavalier mics in each of these helmets and with different padding and all that just to control the reflections 
And so that way, JT can, whenever he wants to, send some of these through his aux sends, uh, almost acting like a effects box. Uh, when people describe this sort of stuff, those always seem like the most fun asides in the creation of a soundtrack. But I don't know, like maybe uh, different mixers have different ideas of like whether or not it's worth the effort to yeah. uh, do this kind of stuff. Totally. Um, I mean, personally, I've also researched with other mixers who worked on like the Martian and all that, you know, which sounded great, uh, personally, I feel. And different people on different shows, we try different things, like on Deadpool, you know, we try different things whenever a character's in the mask or in the helmet. What do you do when you have ADR and then you sometimes try impulse responsing like the prop helmet, try to use impulse response on it or EQing it or in this case, actually worldizing it. To varying degree, they have different effect, but it seems to be the, sometimes the most effective so far, my experience goes. It has the benefit of being able to say, this is what it really sounds like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in this case, you know, also, you know, with Frankie, because he's such a big space fan, he, is, he collects some stuff too, so it's fun for him to, to do this. <laughs> Tim and I were talking about this. There's one scene when the Gemini capsule uh, goes out of control and is spinning. And there's um, cutting from inside the capsule to outside the capsule. And there's very distinctive difference in the design. Uh, obviously, outside the capsule, there is no sound. So the design is a little more stylistic. Mm -hmm. um, and we were talking about, like, how much time do you get to experiment? How many different things do you try uh, when you have a moment like that that's so distinctive and specific and has to be really momentous. Yeah, so for this Gemini, um, I guess we just kind of call it the Gemini spin sequence, we had to sell the idea that they are spinning out of control and the spin is increasing in speed over time and you know could possibly kill them. When we cut outside of the cockpit into the space, we tried various different sounds. We tried to not use the same sounds when we are inside the cockpit, of course, so as to have a feel of difference of it. But some of those elements, we would still have to carry it over inside the cockpit. So it feels like it's one thing. Um, but um, a lot of it, we basically play around with sounds of like um, dopplering or pitch bending sounds like uh, wind and air and even rising tones, uh, dopplering them, and sometimes even like metal vibrating that, you know, we would pitch bend it so it feels like it's going in the rotation and then we would just loop it, um, let's see, or even like um, helicopter blade whoops, or dopplering processing breaths too, and tremulating rolling synth sound sometimes one section, which is the second half of this Gemini spin sequence, and that spinning there, Damien wanted it to sound even more heightened and surreal. And that one, we actually took a long time. Uh, we didn't actually settle on the sounds of that until midway through the final mix. Uh, which basically, you know, we tried many different things, you know, we tried 
train coupling sounds and um, some low pulse, um, low synth sounds that I've created through reactor and whatnot. And also, we also use some elements from Justin Hurwitz, the composer. He also made like a loop kind of sound with many different instruments, uh, which we kind of selected uh, the flute, strings, and a few uh, radio squelches to make up these loops that then I process through a distortion plugin like a decapitator from Sound Toys. Um, that then in the mix, when it's out in the space and the exterior cut, mixed everything more narrower and upfront in the screen so that when we cut back into the cockpit, uh, it folds back around us. Mm so as to get a sense of difference. But I think it's a combination of Justin's elements and some of the effects elements. I think it ended up working for us the best. So that took a while of um, trial and error. This is uh, one of my favorite questions that I get to ask sound supervisors. And this is kind of a perfect situation to ask it in because one of you was on the mixing board. Uh, Millie, when you're doing the sound supervision at the mix, are you the kind of supervisor that sits in the back and lets the mixers make choices? Or are you the kind of sound supervisor that's constantly telling them what, what should be going up and what should be going down? Um, I pretty much sit there and let them do their job. Uh, I feel like what we've presented and we've, you know, during pre-dubbing, we shape it so that I feel like it'll play the way I presented it, but then if I feel like the mixer's going in a direction that I don't agree with, I'll always go up to him. Normally my, my technique is instead of saying it in front of God and everybody, I just kind of walk over to the mixer and tell the mixer directly. You know, if I think maybe put less futz on this or maybe ADR would be better here, but in general, I, I kind of let the mixer do their job. And do you ever really mess with Eileen? <laughs> never. I never mess with Eileen because Eileen always knows what she's doing. <laughs> How did your partnership come about, Millie? Um, the very first film we worked together on was We Bought a Zoo. It's a Cameron Crow film. Mm -hmm. And Eileen was the sound designer and I was the sound supervisor. And I was working with another woman who um, decided she didn't want to co-supervise with me. And so Eileen and I were working together and we worked really well. I I can't remember exactly how it came about, but I think I said, Eileen, do you want to co-supervise? And she's like, yeah. So that's how it started. And we've been doing it that way ever since. And it was great. We had a really good experience on that. And then I think the one that we did after that, I believe, was a film called Hitchcock, directed by Sasha Gervaisi. Do you think it's unusual for partnerships like this? Or is this kind of a thing that develops and you know well, there's, there, there's pairs of people working all over well there apparently are pairs of people working but two women working together i guess it's a little unusual because when we were nominated for la la land and it showed up in variety that we were the first team of women to be nominated as co-sound supervisors i was really surprised i yeah. thought surely someone else must have done this and even now, I'm thinking, I don't know too many teams of women working together. I know there are a lot of teams of, um, you know, one man, one woman, or two men, of course. There's lots of those, but not too many two women working together. Is there anything about it, or is it just two individuals? I think things are changing now, but I feel like, especially when I was starting out, which was like 30 years ago, there was this idea that sound effects and sound design was sort of a man's job and men did that. And so that when you had teams of co-supervisors, you often had 
a guy doing the sound design and, and then maybe a woman being the, like kind of what I do, like the dialogue ADR. And I've been aware of teams working in that way. But I think, unfortunately, Eileen is still pretty unusual that she's a woman who does sound design, sound supervising, and sound effects mixing. I find that there are very few women that I can think of right now who are doing that. So Eileen's still kind of a maverick. <laughs> okay. I don't know. I, I don't want to speak for you, Eileen, but... No, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I think, yeah, Millie is right. Um, from my experience from you know, being nominated uh, for Oscars for La La Land, um, I was really surprised that uh, we were the first female sound team to be nominated. And um, But I feel like there's more and more women, you know, who are interested in like sound nowadays, you know, be it in dialogue ADR or even sound design and mixing. I've been meeting a lot more women, young women who are interested in it uh, nowadays. So I would hope uh, the future will be changing soon. I'm, I'm from an earlier generation and I went to film school. I started working in post-production as a sound assistant and also a picture assistant and I did a little bit of everything and I didn't intend out of film school I'm going to be a supervising sound editor. I just wanted a job and, and it led me to sound editing and sound supervising and I found I really loved it and I'm really happy with what I'm doing. Eileen is a different example. Eileen started right away wanting to be a sound effects editor and sound designer, right Eileen? Yeah, um, I'm from Singapore and so, you know, um, just grew up because my dad, like, he had his own little um, home entertainment system at home and he loved watching uh, movies over and over again. You know, he only owned a handful of Hollywood films and so, you know, we watched like Terminator 2, like so many times. Um, <laughs> but what also took me into it was also like say Jurassic Park and stuff. But then uh, having watched all these movies, it kind of made me feel like sound is such a powerful tool. It's invisible, but it still affected me and brought me into that film's environment, its world. And sometimes it even works when you don't see it. You just hear it and you get the feeling. But, you know, in Singapore at that time, that was like mid-90s. Singapore at that time, they didn't have any film school. I uh, just went to a different school for like audio engineering, more for like music rather than post-production. Then I found work there at a post house that does like radio TV commercials and music recording and mixing. But because they don't normally do much films in Singapore at that time, so I just kind of like wrote letters to like sound department heads uh, at studios here in Los Angeles and some other owners of different sound companies like at Sound Deluxe and all that. You know, like, hey, I'm from Singapore, you know, would you my advice to in and, you know, um, learn a little bit about what you do and stuff. And some of them reply. And so I came out here in 1998 and got a job. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, generationally it's different, and especially nowadays, um, there's a lot more classes at schools now that are more focused on, say, sound or, and even some film making classes that hopefully would also emphasize more in sound too, because um, it's a very useful tool in a storytelling process. 
I feel like we're on a bit of an upswing in terms of recognition of that, hopefully. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you two are doing more than your part because on this film, there's you two. Uh, the dialogue supervisor was a woman, I believe. And uh, Nia Hansen, a friend of the podcast here, she was one of your editors. And was the mm -hmm. location recordist a female as well? Yes. But that, a lot of that would be Damien as well because um, there are women involved in all aspects of sound on this film. And Damien's always been really supportive. He's really into sound and he... Um, I'm just so happy after working with him on La La Land, he wanted to work with us again on First Man. So that was really exciting. They seem to be a tight uh, trio, him and Tom Cross and the composer. Justin Hurwitz. Justin Hurwitz, yeah. Yeah, like it seems like they, between the three of them, have really um, locked down what they want. Like you're saying, the, the animatics were even so detailed. Is Justin involved right from the top in this film? Yes, he was. I believe that even when Damien, they were working on the animatics, Justin has been like coming up with different themes and sending, you know, different versions, so many versions of it to Damien. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. And, but I recall, I think, uh, Justin saying like sometimes they may play some of his score and his, his demo on set just for mood and stuff. With Damien and Justin, the music element starts really early, which is really beneficial to us. What I think is to their credit, I really loved how there isn't music wall to wall. And in this genre, I don't know if you call this a genre of film, like this sort of heroic American history biopic. I feel like sometimes like the, those films really rely on music for drama. And the use of music in this film is actually really well balanced with the effects. Yeah, I feel like that's yeah. one of the things I love about working on this film is that they left a lot of room for sound. I mean, two huge sequences, the X-15, which opens the film, and the Apollo 8 launch. In the X-15, there's very little music, almost no music. It's only in the middle of it when he's, um, when he's just floating up there. You hear a tiny bit of music, and then most of it's carried by the sound effects. And same thing with the Gemini 8 launch. It's all sound effects. It's an amazing accomplishment to tell the story through sound effects the way you have. Yeah. Again, back to this animatics thing. I think a lot of the times when Damien just has like a very specific vision in his head even before he shoots and throughout the whole production and post-production process and for every single element for all departments on the film, sound included. Um, and so I think early on he had set it up where some of these set piece scenes, the X-15 or Germany sequence or the LLTV sequence, you know, there weren't uh, really any music and um, he actually also tried the Apollo launch first without music and then he just thought that launch needs to sound different, it needs to sound more majestic and grander and that's why um, during post-production he asked Justin to compose music for that and Justin was, you know, he's a very smart composer, he knows there's a lot of bombastic sounds involved in there and so he picked different instrumentations in the orchestration that won't really conflict with the sound. I think there's also a thing for me when I was watching it as a sound person myself to see a film that sound takes such a lead role on while uh, accomplishing all the goals but also not sounding stereotypical. I didn't feel like it was 
uh, Tom Hanks Apollo 13 redo or anything like that. Like it was its own piece. Uh, it's actually a really so- quiet film for a big space epic. Uh, when we're yeah. not in a spaceship, there's it's really uh, minimal in the soundtrack in many spots. But uh, yeah, I just loved that you guys were given a really difficult challenge and you, you really uh, stepped up to it. So congratulations on that. Thank you so thank much, you, you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for uh, being a part of the show today. And uh, we're looking forward to whatever you're working on next. Thank you both. It's so much fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.